south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 206, covering the week of February 17 through February 21st, 2020. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media buttons on our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. You can also download our free mobile application. Just go to your app store, whatever that may be, search for Abbeville Institute. You'll find the mobile app. Download that. You've got the podcasts on the go. You've got all our lectures on the go. And of course, mobile access to the website. It's free of charge. Great way to do it. And of course, you do uh, stay up to date with what's going on at the Institute. Uh, We do have a new conference. We have now announced our summer school for 2020, our 18th annual summer school. It is going to be held again in Seabrook Island, South Carolina, the week of June 21st through the 26th, 2020. Make your plans now. Space is limited. The topic is exploring the Southern tradition. So um, I think this is going to be a grand time. It's going to be our boot camp format where we're going to have a tremendous amount of reading and immersing the students, the participants in the the conference in the academic material. So it's going to be a great time. Make your plans if you have a student, advanced high school, college, or a graduate student who would like to attend, or if you're that yourself, please contact Dr. Livingston. Go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. All the information is available there. That said, also remember we exist on your, ta- on your generous contributions alone. So if you want to make a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute, please do so. Just go to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on that support tab and donor options. It'll take you out to a page that now is an easier, more accessible page. I will say that. We've got a new format for it, so it's a lot easier to use. You can donate monthly, one-time gift, annually, however you want to do it. But uh, please consider a tax-deductible donation. Also, click on that shop tab under support. You can go out and get your Abbeville Institute apparel. We did add a few other styles to the uh, catalog. So if you're looking for maybe a, a pullover sweatshirt, we have that now. Um, we also, of course, have fleece uh, fleece jackets. We've got our polo shirts, T-shirts, hats, a lot of great stuff. So consider any of that. Uh, it is a great way to advertise for the Institute and, of course, also help us in our mission as well. All right. All that said, let's talk about the material for the week. We had a lot of good stuff, but before I, I do that, and of course we've been running this series, we've gotten up to 10 parts now on Clyde Wilson's Southerner's Movie Guide. If you paid attention to the news in the past couple of days, you'll note that Donald Trump was in some hot water for saying that he didn't like the recent Best Picture winner for the Oscars because it was a Korean film. And he wondered, what happened to Gone with the Wind? Now this was absolutely hilarious because the leftist social media historian brigade, and of course all the snowflakes there, went berserk over this, thinking that uh, Donald Trump had committed the greatest racist faux pas in the history of the the modern presidency because he bashed a Korean film while promoting Gone with the Wind. And there were questions, well, what about Birth of a Nation? When's Trump going to list that? But I think it's great. It's fitting that we've had this wonderful series on... Southern movies, what to watch, what not to watch. Of course, Clyde Wilson would heavily and highly recommend Gone with the Wind. It is a fantastic film, and Trump was right. What happened to Gone with the Wind? 
Gone with the Wind is the highest grossing film in the history of film. I mean, even if you adjust for inflation, it's made more money. It's done better than any American film in the history of the cinema. I mean, so when you're wondering aloud what happened to Gone with the Wind, you're wondering about the best film that's ever been made in terms of ticket receipts in the history of the American cinema. That's a wonderful thing. And of course, it's a very good movie. The book is very good as well. And it's a nice portrayal of the South during the war and Reconstruction. I mean, what's better? Um, of course, it has a diverse cast. This is something that people forget. 1939, it's got a very diverse cast in it. I mean, it's, it's not just all white actors and actresses. So um, that was in the characters that are in it, the characters that play the slaves and former slaves actually have a very substantial role and are not just considered to be a bunch of dunderheads all the time. I mean, it's, it's a, as, as you would think if it was a quote-unquote racist film. It's not that. Um, it's, a, it's a complex film that really shows, and I think one, one time we had uh, really shows uh, the complexity of, of Southern life in the antebellum and early postbellum period. And uh, several years ago, John Devaney, who writes for us quite often, did a talk about Gone with the Wind and the ideal uh, feminine role in the South and how Scarlett O'Hara is actually not really Southern at all. She's more of a Yankee than anything else. It was an interesting observation on the film because it's not something that you really think about. But, you know, everyone thinks Scarlett O'Hara, the typical Southern belle. And uh, Devaney's point was, no, it's not the case at all. You actually had some of the other characters that would fit that characterization better than Scarlett O'Hara would. And, of course, she plays with Rhett Butler and, uh, you know, Rhett Butler just can't take it anymore and issues his famous line on leaving Tara. Uh, but the portrayal of Scarlett O'Hara is not one that's very flattering of Southern women. And I think it's, as I think Devaney's correct about this, it wasn't the typical Southern woman that you would see in that film. It was something that was atypical. So, again, it's great that Trump said this. Great that, um, that uh, this is, uh, he came out and, and said, you know, what about, what about Gone with the Wind? Um, you can, I mean, whether he's bashing one film or another, who cares? The fact is that he's promoting one of the best films that's ever been made. Uh, we have uh, another contributor, Robin Lattimore, who writes for us about architecture at times. Big Gone with the Wind fan. And um, he, um, on social media, posted uh, some pictures on his social media account not long ago that he went to um, back in the 80s. Uh, the 50th anniversary, it was 1989, 50th anniversary of Gone with the Wind, and they had some of the actors there. It's amazing photographs. It was really nice to see that uh, at a time when Gone with the Wind was not considered to be politically incorrect, which it is today, as the snowflakes on social media let us know. But this is an interesting week, and we had a, a couple of... The, the theme this week was generally culture, cinema culture, uh, the small screen, also literature, and uh, the piece that I wrote for the week on William Henry Harrison. So let's, I'll, I'll get to that one last because it's the odd piece, but it actually has to do, the, the Monday and Tuesday's piece go together. So let's start with Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we'll work backwards. We'll start with Friday, a Confederate Christmas. Um, this is a really interesting piece by one of our Japanese scholars, or he's not actually Japanese, he's from the South, but living in Japan, 
Jack Marcourt, um, who is a World War II veteran. He actually came out to one of our, if I've not mentioned this before, I believe I have, but maybe you're hearing it the first time. He, he came out to uh, one of our conferences years ago, about five years ago, flew all the way from Japan to come to the conference. Wonderful, very nice uh, gentleman, someone who's really interested in the Southern tradition. Again, lives in Japan now, has lived there most of his adult life. Um, and so he's uh, he, he contacts us frequently from Japan, and uh, we really do appreciate his contributions to the website and, of course, uh, his contributions to the to in supporting the institute, um, but uh, Jack wrote this piece about uh, Confederate Christmas, and it's not really about that. I mean, that's what the title is, but it's more about uh, a participant in this Confederate Christmas, um, a man named William Gordon McCabe. William Gordon McCabe wrote a little poem that appeared in the Southern Literary Messenger. And uh, McCabe was from a very old Virginia family, and McCabe became a prominent member of Virginia society after the war was over. Wrote this little poem about Christmas, which um, was solemn. But of course, Southerners, as Jack points out, had celebrated Christmas when it was illegal to do so in Puritan Massachusetts. Southerners had taken part in Christmas celebrations all through the antebellum period. In fact, the best Christmas story written in the South was William Gilmore Sims' A Golden Christmas. And you really get an idea for what Christmas was like, the celebratory nature of Christmas, where you don't have it as much in the North. Um, in fact, you really don't see the, uh, the celebration of Christmas become an important holiday in the North until long after the war is over. But regardless, this is an interesting piece because it focuses on a Southern literary figure, William Gordon McCabe, um, who was more importantly involved in Southern education. Now, of course, one of the knocks against the South, anytime you talk about the South and Southern history and the Southern tradition, you hear the stereotype that the South and the South Southerners are just poorly educated. They don't know anything. These people have no teeth. They can't spell. They can't read. Uh, they, they can barely get out of second grade. I mean, they can't, they can't add two and two. Of course, it's not true. And McCabe was part of a educational renaissance in the South once the war was over. Um, in fact, started a school that was very successful. And Northern magazines came down and uh, reviewed his school and looked at what he was doing. And uh, so he's a nice example of Southerners looking to rebuild their society after the war was over. There's also a really moving part of this. You know, he's, um, he's involved in the acquisition of a flag um, that was owned by a man named Colonel Pegram. And Colonel Pegram, he was actually part of Colonel Pegram's detachment. And, uh, Colonel Pegram, when Colonel Pegram died, McCabe gave one of the eulogies. And two decades later, McCabe was given the battle flag that Pegram's battalion had used uh, in, in the war, and it was bullet-ridden. I mean, this is something that people don't get when they talk about these monuments and symbols and what these things actually meant to the men who had them. What these things actually meant to the men who had fought and died under these symbols. 
The monuments, of course, were not there, but these monuments were built with pennies acquired from women and men from all over the South. There was very little state money used in these things. These were acquired with pennies because the grief and the loss of the war was so pronounced because the impact of the war on, the, on Southern society and economy was so pronounced that people simply wanted to remember. And I think it's one of the great tragedies of uh, the modern era that we allow people who don't have a concept of tragedy, who don't really understand mourning and grief, the way that an entire section of the country suffered under, and how they just can't get it. I just read a piece at AL.com from a Latin American professor at a small university in Alabama uh, writing about Confederate symbols and how they should come down. He doesn't even know the symbol, he's, the one that the statues he's talking about isn't where he said it was. I mean, the guy's a moron. But here, AL.com is going to publish it. The guy's a Latin American specialist, uh, a specialist at his institution. Not, not Southern. Not Americanist, he's a Latin American specialist. So I guess if he's talking about Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras or Venezuela, Colombia, I don't know. He's focusing on, uh, I believe in his research interests, are Mexico and film in Mexico. So I guess if that's what he wants to write about, you know, we will listen to him. But in this particular case, he was so far off the mark, he's just regurgitating the stupidity that you find in places like the Atlantic or the 1619 Project, which is a joke. Um, I mean, it's just par for the course. But this piece, this is why the Institute exists, because we give you the other side. We give you the other side. This is why you should read these, these articles, share them around on social media, let your friends know about them, get them involved in listening to the podcast, because this is how we expand our reach and get more people to understand, hey, there's there's two sides of the story, you know. Um, and it's amazing to me the people that are you know, writing this, they're courageous for writing this on AL.com. AL.com is a left-leaning uh, website, without question. And, and it's not courageous for a, a man from the historical profession to write an article like that, because that's what generally the historical profession believes. So it's not courageous. And we'll talk about that when we get to the piece for um, Monday and Tuesday. Of course, Clyde Wilson again offers his Fantastic Southerners movie guide. Again, part 10. And uh, he gets into some of the films in the post-war period. Films like The Virginian or The Bostonian, Song of the South, The Rough Riders. Um, some of the African-American films that were produced in this time period. Uh, country Music, uh, Ring of Fire, and uh, Coal Miner's Daughter. Uh, some, of, some of the great films that were produced about country music. He does actually give very high uh, rankings for um, reviews for country music, a film by Ken Burns. Um, any Ken Burns documentaries be taken carefully because Ken Burns does tend to infuse politics into his uh, into his films, um, and country music's no different. But um, Clyde Wilson, I think, does a very good job of pulling out what's good about this thing and telling you, you know, avoid this or at least be critical of this in this particular show. So um, I love this piece. Again, we're going to have more. We're going to have a, another series, another installment coming 
not too far down the road, so be on the lookout for that. And then we had the piece on Wednesday by Aaron Gleason, King of the Hill. Now, this is a current comedy show. I think it's still on TV. Current show, it's a, it's a comedy, a cartoon comedy, like The Simpsons or one of the others. It's actually produced by the guy that made Beavis and Butthead back in the uh, 80s and 90s, which uh, was you know a really idiotic show on MTV, but very popular with young people. So Mike Judge made that show, and then he made this King of the Hill. And uh, Aaron points out that Hank Hill is the personification of the Southern tradition. And in fact, Mike Judge is not picking on him at all. He's actually trying to show that Hank Hill is a really important person. And his positions on life and society aren't stupid. But there are two sides to all these stories. I mean, you got to admire Mike Judge for this. Because he could have just gone the other way and said, you know what, we're just going to create a caricature of the South. We're just going to have it fit with what the South actually is. It's going to look awful in his mind. It's, it's going to be terrible. So we're going to make sure that this um, this character is every stereotype of the South on, you know, on 100, right? It's just going to be awful. So we've got this cartoon by Mike Judge, and the main character, as Aaron Gleason explains, is the personification in many ways of the Southern tradition and what's going on in woke society today. You've got times when the characters will deviate off on this path of uh, PC and Hank Hill is always there to kind of rein them back in but in a nice way and I think the concluding paragraph in this particular piece is interesting because uh, he says something that I find just great he says uh, this is what, what King of the Hill was really about Hank was a Texan first and an American second he probably wouldn't have put it that way, but it's there all through the show. For Hank being Texan wasn't about politics. He named his Georgia bloodhound Lady Bird in honor of LBJ's wife. LBJ is one of the arch-progressive Democrats, but Hank was proud, just proud he was a Texan. Hank shows just as much patriotism over the Texas Revolution as he does Fourth of July. That's the way it's supposed to be. Individuals aren't supposed to be characterized by their inner self, an effable quality invented almost wholesale by Rousseau. We are most happy when our inner selves reflect the community around us, when our external world and inner world live in peace. That's the real wisdom of, of the hills, being at home with home, allowing ourselves to be characterized by things we don't choose and have control over, allowing ourselves to be characterized by providence and duty rather than individualism and consent. So this is a wonderful piece in that way. I think uh, Aaron Gleason has done a nice job in pointing out this... Um, this aspect of the Southern tradition that is, without question, the most important thing we can get out of that, um, which is this dedication to place and home. So we go to that and thinking of that theme, place and home, and what that actually means, place and home. And we extend that out to the piece that I wrote on Monday. And of course, looking at Clyde Wilson's piece on how to study history on Tuesday. There is certainly an attack on the way that we have to think about history. And I mentioned this piece that was published in AL.com about Confederate monuments. And all next week is going to be about Confederate monuments for the most part. So we've got a lot going on with that. 
But you look at someone who studies Latin American history, and then they write this piece on Southern monuments, and they really don't know what they're talking about. It's, it's evident. He's just regurgitating things that he gets out of the fashionable journals, the fashionable, not, the fashionable uh, literature that's being produced on the South, the Atlantic Magazine. I mean, this is where he's getting his material from. And you look at the piece that Clyde wrote on Tuesday about how to study history, which is a book review of Howard White's little book on studying history. Um, and it becomes clear that the academy, the, the mainstream academy, academia, is not that interested in anything but what is fashionable. And how do you get around that? Well, the, the academy produces things like this stupid piece from this idiotic professor at in Alabama. That's what the academy produces. And when you look at what Aaron Gleason is saying, or you look at the history that's in Jack Marcourt's piece, or you look at the movies that Clyde Wilson suggests, these go against the traditional interpretation of Southern history. Um, as Gleason says in his piece, the South predates 1776, and it will survive the eventual dismantling of the U.S. federal government. It isn't skin color. It's pre-political. It's a people in a place. It's a home to those that will let themselves become attached to it. This is what McCabe's desire to have that flag is all about, the bullet-ridden riddled flag that he acquired after the death of his friend. Uh, this is... Hank Hill. This is what place does. This is why Clyde picks the films that he does for the Southerner's Movie Guide. This is what's important about the Southern tradition and studying that Southern tradition, as Clyde suggests in this particular piece. Um, he says, in fact, White has, has indeed identified many of the failings of academic historians of today who care not about the history that people actually lived, but are eager to force artificial theories onto the experience of humanity. It is to the non-professionals that we too often need to look to understand the past of our kind. King of the Hill. And when you think about William Henry Harrison, which is what I wrote about on Monday, President's Day, so-called President's Day, quote-unquote, you think about what that is. Um... It's really George Washington's birthday, but of course it's been co-opted and turned into President's Day. You think about William Henry Harrison, the reason I, I wrote this piece on Harrison is because Harrison's a Virginian. I mean, he's Indiana, where he's the military governor, but he's a Virginian. His father had signed the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Harrison was born before the war. And Harrison is often a joke because the man died a month after taking office. He was 68 years old when he was elected. Um, dies a month after taking office. Writes the longest inaugural address, 8,000 words. But that address is often just as... He writes the longest inaugural address and he gets the money and he dies. Nobody knows what the address actually says, though. And that's because historians really don't look at it. I was uh, you know, talking to a colleague about this and I said, you know... People just don't read it. They just, just a side note. While he wrote the longest inaugural address, it's just so he could show that he knew something. No. It's because he wanted to ensure and reassure the voting public that William Henry Harrison understood the limitations of the presidency 
understood the limitations of the Constitution, understood what real union was. And when you look at this particular speech, it's amazing. It really is an amazing address. And again, Virginia is what peppered his political philosophy, not Indiana, not the, not the West. He's not a northerner. And that's, we often think Whigs, northerners. I mean, this is a southerner. In fact, all the Whig presidents who were really important were southerners. We had, we had three of them, four if you count Fillmore. But Fillmore was uh, an interesting character in that um, he was not from the South, from New York, but he was the vice president. And you look at all the, all the men that were nominated by the Whig Party, they're all Southerners. William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, even Henry Clay. Uh, Winfield Scott is a Southerner. But a couple of things, highlights that I pulled out of that 8,000-word inaugural address. He was critical of the idea of the president as legislator-in-chief and said, in fact, he said this, quote, I cannot conceive that by a fair construction any or either of his provisions would be found to constitute the president as part of the legislative power. In the language of the Constitution, all legislative powers which it grants are vested in the Congress of the United States. It would be a solecism in language to say that any portion of these is not included in the whole. Harrison would only use a veto if he had to and to defend the Constitution. And more importantly, I love this particular quote. He says this, when it comes to the sectional conflict, he said, experience has abundantly taught us that the agitation by the citizens of one part of the union of a subject not confided to the general government, but exclusively under the guardianship of the local authorities is productive of no other consequences than bitterness, alienation, discord, and injury to the very cause which is intended to be advanced. He said, the spirit of liberty is a sovereign balm for every injury which our institutions may receive. Only in this way could the weaker feeling of the mistaken enthusiast be corrected. The utopian dreams of the scheming politician dissipated and the complicated intrigues of the demagogue rendered harmless. Think about that. The utopian dreams of the scheming politician, which is what we have all the time now, when you look at this particular legislative program or that program or this policy or that policy. It's what was destructive of the Union in the 1850s, the utopian dreams of the scheming politician. Here's William Henry Harrison, Southerner, Whig, saying these things because he wanted to say and he wanted to ensure that the Union would be preserved. And he, what did he define by Union? He said this, it is the Union that we want. Not of a party or for the sake of that party, but a union of the whole country for the sake of the whole country. For the defense of its interests and its honor against foreign aggression. For the defense of those principles which our ancestors so gloriously contended. He mentioned Jefferson four times in his inaugural and Madison once. He never mentioned Hamilton or Washington. He mentioned Jefferson. But you won't get that in your mainstream history curriculum about the United States. Harrison's just, well, I mean, this guy just out of touch. These Whigs are out of touch. All these people are out of touch talking about union. What really they should have been talking about is jumping on board with the uh, sectional agitation of the North. They should have been jumping on board with that. Because that was the right cause. I mean, was it the legal cause, though? 
was it really the nationalists that were driving a stake through the heart of the American Union and not the sectionalists? You see, or was it the sectionalists from New England disguised as nationalists who were driving a stake through the Union, but the real nationalists, the Virginians, were trying to save it? This is the question. And I think one that can only be answered by a careful study of history that's not colored by the mainstream academy. But it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do. So I love all the pieces that we had this week. I think they're just tremendous. I think we had some really good stuff. And of course, focusing on Southern culture, literature, film, the small screen, and then looking at history and how history and the interpretation of history, which it's history. That's history is interpretation. How that interpretation coming from the mainstream distorts our perspective on things. How it is highly problematic long term to have Latin American historians trying to tell America, Southern Americans, what, is, what they should think about their monuments and their past. How we forget the McCabe's of the war. Great men who admired their fallen comrades who just wanted to have that bullet-ridden riddled flag. Hank Hill, who's giving advice to his son to live and let live, but trying to point out the real problems of American utopianism, which is Yankee utopianism. William Henry Harrison saying the same thing. Southern films which point out, or films that nicely portray Southerners that point out the inconsistencies in Yankee ideology. If we can get back to that, and this is what the Institute does on a regular basis, we get back to that, we get back to that understanding, we'll be far better for it. Until next time, good day. Good day.